Good morning. Today our reading is the entirety of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that you would remind us that it is not just black ink on a white page, but these words are living and true. Father, they are beautiful and profound, deep enough to occupy the minds of prophets and apostles, philosophers and scholars. Even angels long to look into the truths which you have revealed in your word. We thank you and we pray that you would open our hearts to receive it this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So this morning we bring to conclusion our series on words of wisdom, a a series on the book of Proverbs. And I acknowledge, I recognize that the passage I used for this morning is not a proverb. It's a psalm, a very long psalm, right? I don't feel bad about it because technically it is a wisdom psalm. And quite frankly, I didn't want to preach from the book of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs for me is my book of James. If you don't know, Martin Luther, the reformer, did not like the book of James. 
He called it at one point an epistle of straw. He, he didn't think it exposed, made clear the gospel, or even highlighted Jesus very much. And so he wasn't a fan. Uh, my level of dislike doesn't nearly approach Martin Luther's. But I don't like the book of Proverbs. Uh, I, I know it's me. I know it's my problem. It's inspired. I need to hear these words of wisdom. But the book of Proverbs in me kind of raises that inner cynic. That's just always kind of right beneath the surface anyway. But the book of Proverbs brings it out. Because I read in Proverbs 3.9, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing. And I think of my parents, who were amazingly faithful for their lifetime of giving to the church and supporting missions And as far as I know, their barns were never filled to overflowing. I read Proverbs 10.27. It says, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. And I think of my grandfather who loved the Word of God. He, He would take my grandma to the grocery store and sit for an hour while she was in doing the grocery shopping. Just sit in the car and read the Word. He died at the age of 70. Hugh Hefner lived to 91. There's this dissonance in the book of Proverbs with what I kind of see and experience in reality. And so it brings out that inner cynic. I think the psalmist who wrote Psalm 73, Asaph by name, I think he would have been somewhat cynical of the Proverbs too. Proverbs was probably written after he wrote Psalm 73. But you see in this psalm, he's struggling with what he thinks ought to be true. With what he thinks wisdom and God's ways would dictate versus what he sees in his world. So I like Psalm 73 as a piece of wisdom literature because it helps me move from that cynicism to true biblical wisdom. How do we do that? How do we move from cynicism when we read things like the book of Proverbs to true biblical wisdom? Well, each week in this walk-up video, this intro video that uh, Adam put together for us, we've seen this slide and these words from Albert Einstein. The true sign of intelligence, or I would say wisdom, is not knowledge but imagination. I really agree with Einstein's words here. He, he goes on and says, knowledge is limited to, to all we know now and understand now, while imagination embraces the entire world and all that ever will be known. I love Einstein's word, words, but I think the word faith is better than imagination here. Faith is a better word. Stick with me for just a moment, okay? If wisdom pleases God, and we know that it does, Proverbs is all about wisdom being pleasing to God, then it must be grounded in faith, rooted in faith. Because Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, It's impossible to please God. 
So wisdom that pleases God must be grounded and rooted in faith. Faith that accepts God's word as true, as important. But when, it's, when it encounters situations that don't seem to line up with what we know God has said, it looks further on down the road. It embraces God's word as true, and it looks further on down the road. Not just five years or ten years, but into eternity. Faith opens up an eternal perspective for us. And that eternal perspective is the key to unlocking biblical, godly wisdom. Now here I just want to give a kind of Aside, a parental warning, if you say things often in your home, be careful. Your kids might turn them into tattoos, okay? So in my house growing up, my dad said, I would say almost daily, maybe weekly, this too shall pass. Now, I've adopted that. I say that all the time in my own family. And one of my sons has enlisted the help of another son to design a tattoo with that phrase. And it's the one that's turning bright red right now. So, I love that phrase. I love the truth that's behind it. This too shall pass. Whether you're walking through a dark valley and you're under a cloud of discouragement, going through some trial, this too shall pass. Whether, or not you're in, whether you're in a season of life where everything's coming up aces, it's all sunshine and roses, you need to hear those words, this too shall pass. This life, with all the peaks and all the valleys, this too shall pass. And if all our thoughts and all our calculations only take into account this moment or even this life, it's not truly wisdom. Wisdom needs this eternal perspective that understands that this life will pass. That's what Asaph is wrestling with in this psalm. He looks around and he sees the wicked. They're prospering. They're getting ahead. They're oppressing the poor and they're not being judged for it. Not being called to account for it. They're even mocking God. Saying, does God Almighty really even know or care? And he's struggling. Because he says, have I kept myself pure and innocent in vain? Why did I care? Why did I do this? But then the eternal perspective smacks him. And he says, ah. Then I discerned their final destiny, their eternal end. You've put them on a slippery slope. And suddenly they'll fall. And suddenly all that prosperity And all that arrogance will count for nothing. But for the righteous, you're with them. 
You guide them with your right hand. You guide them with your counsel. And you will bring them into glory with you. That, that new eternal perspective that Asaph, the psalmist, adopts, that he gains, leads him to pen what I think are the most beautiful words in the entire Psalter. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the logic behind Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians. When he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Struggles that we go through in this life don't seem light and momentary when we're in the midst of them. Life can be difficult and seem oppressively hard, but compared to the eternal weight of glory, once you see those struggles through an eternal perspective, you change. It changes. I want to pause here for a minute. Pause for an apologetic aside. I know so far I haven't been light and jovial. It's going to get worse. <laughs> We're going to wade into some deep water here for a minute because it's really important. The eternal perspective that I've been arguing is key to biblical wisdom has been at the center of some of the most scathing critiques of the Christian message over the past few centuries. I'm thinking as I'm preaching of Karl Marx or a young devotee of Karl Marx sitting here and saying, Ugh, just another sermon to pacify the poor and the impressed with hopes of eternal bliss. Just some more opiate for the masses. I'm thinking of the 18th century poet, William Blake, who wrote the famous poems, The Chimney Sweepers, highlighting how religion and these promises of eternal bliss was used to oppress children, sometimes four and five and six years old, to motivate them to go out and do their duty, to go out into the filth, the danger, the, the deadly chimney-sweeping vocation to which they had been sold, telling them all the while that angels will come to your casket and lift you out and take you so you can run in sunny fields in heaven. That's hard. How these truths have been misused, misapplied, used to oppress. I think we need to address that kind of critique first by acknowledging that these biblical truths have at times been preached to the poor and the oppressed by a church who showed little or no regard for the listener's plight, to their poverty, 
or to their misery. Good words of eternity were preached, good works to lift up the downtrodden were not. They were ignored, not by all, certainly not by all, but by enough that it's a problematic part of our story. Worse, some intentionally misused these beautiful truths to prop up ugly, oppressive systems. Or in my son Caleb's words, some took these truths and weaponized them. Weaponized them to continue to oppress, to mollify the masses that they were actively, willfully, sinfully oppressing. So churches in England, many of them, turned a blind eye to the deadly conditions of the poor. In America, evangelists preached to slaves of eternal rewards while also lobbying to keep slavery legal. Not all, but many. Pastors in the civil rights era preached about equal access to the grace of God, even equal access to heaven itself without bothering to trouble themselves to seek equal access to justice, equal access to education, even equal access to public restrooms. It was not right then, and it's not right now, for us as the church of Christ to extol God's eternal justice if we turn a blind eye to material injustices in the here and the now. It's not right for us as the church of Jesus Christ to hold out eternal riches like a carrot on a stick while turning a blind eye and ignoring poverty and suffering, whether it's racially motivated or just caused by the greed of the powerful. Good words and good works must be part of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin acknowledged this critique, but he pressed on. He wrote that the fact that these truths have been misused doesn't mean they're untrue or not beautiful. He, he called the church to activity, to coming alongside the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, to alleviating their material discomfort and injustices. But he reminded the church that we will never, this side of eternity, establish perfect shalom, perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect inequality. There will always be those who fall through the cracks, or in Jesus' words, you will always have the poor among you. But we still have words of hope for them. We still have words of hope from Psalm 73. We tell those who have been denied justice, we'll work with you. We tell those who are never escaping crushing poverty that we love you, we serve you, and we 
lift their eyes to eternity. We help them as we need ourselves to gain an eternal perspective. That's the apologetic aside. Important truths. We can't sacrifice them. Gaining an eternal perspective is a key to unlocking wisdom. And lacking an eternal perspective leads to folly. Personally, in our lives, it leads to folly. If we neglect eternity, put yourself in Asaph's shoes. He's struggling with how the wicked are excelling, uh, prospering. And he's thinking, have I done all of this righteous stuff in vain? He, He gets this eternal perspective, but what if he didn't? What if he neglected eternity? How long would he have been able to persist in doing the good? How long would he have been able to resist holding off that that temptation to just do what gets you ahead in this life. Failing to adopt that eternal perspective would lead to folly, and it honestly makes us really bad friends too. Look at the book of Job. Job's friends did not have this eternal perspective. They had simple math. They hadn't gone to the calculus that includes eternity. They had simple math that said, God blesses the righteous, punishes the wicked. Job, if you're suffering, it must be because you've done some wickedness that you need to confess. He didn't have this eternal perspective. Maybe lack of eternal perspective doesn't lead us to be quite as bad as Job, quite as callous as Job's friends. But it can lead to some really trite, trivial, flippant kind of advice. Where we say things that on one hand are true. God's working everything to your good. Find the good in the situation. It's true, but not true. Not every situation you're in is good. And it's wrong to call evil good. Not always good, not always pleasant. You can't find the silver lining in every situation without an eternal perspective. The eternal perspective says this really stinks, but this too shall pass. The eternal perspective is the key to unlocking true biblical godly wisdom, and lacking it leads to folly. But how? How do we adopt this eternal perspective? Well, in Asaph's case, it came through corporate worship. Corporate worship was the key that unlocked this eternal perspective. He he was struggling. His feet almost slipped and fell. It was a deeply troubling thing in life to, to contemplate until... I went into God's sanctuary, he says. And there, I got this eternal perspective. Uh, The tabernacle, the temple that Asaph walked into. The very architecture and the furnishings of the sanctuary were meant to remind people of heavenly 
spiritual realities. Now, I love this building. It's beautiful. But it's not designed with the same kind of goal. The building itself isn't to remind us of heavenly realities. But here together, as the people of God, we are. It's not the building. It's what we do together in worship. Let me ask you, what's the main reason we come together on Sunday mornings for worship? Is it to learn? Yes and no. I learn well sitting in my lazy boy reading a book or tuning in to my favorite preachers or professors on YouTube. There's a, a different kind of learning that happens in corporate worship. Among evangelicals, one of the favorite images of the church has been that of a school where we come in and we learn and the word is front and center. And that's a good image, but it is not sufficient in and of itself. When we come together in worship, yeah, it's a school. It's also a hospital where the balm of the gospel is applied to our infirmities. We also come together as an embassy, as a body. And you could add dozens of other images. Let me submit an image to you that I don't think is probably going to stick, but contemplate it anyway. The church, yes, it's a school, yes, it's a hospital, yes, it's an embassy. It's also like a mechanic's shop. I know when I was younger and driving really beat up cars that were old, sometimes my headlights would get misaligned. And you'd have to occasionally re-aim your headlights. You know, they, they'd droop and they'd be like focused just on the road ahead of you. Or, you know, you'd you know, clip a tree and they'd be aimed that way. Or You did that too, right? Uh, your headlights would get misaimed, and they wouldn't illuminate down the road far enough, and you'd have to have them re-aimed. Or your alignment would get out of whack, and it would pull this way or pull that way, and you'd have to go get realigned so you could head straight down, further down the road. That's what we do here. We come in and we, we taste heavenly realities, not fully, just tastes. We glimpse heavenly realities. We participate in heavenly re realities as the eternal people of God coming together in worship, coming together to hear the eternal words of God. Worship, worship puts God front and center in our vision like nothing else can. Corporate worship, together, We gain this eternal perspective in part through corporate worship, and it's key to true biblical godly wisdom. This kind of wisdom was, well, it was modeled for us 
by Jesus Christ, who is wisdom incarnate. As he was approaching the cross, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, that it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set he, he lifted his eyes and looked beyond the cross. Looked beyond the week of trial and abandonment and betrayal and torture. He looked further down the road. Not just months, not just years, but to the eternal joy that was set before him. And through that joy, because of that joy, he endured the cross. He modeled this kind of wisdom for us, but he didn't just model it. He made it possible. He opened up the vista of eternity and made it possible for us to include eternity into our calculus, into our calculations regarding wisdom. See, eternal blessings, eternal joy doesn't just come automatically. It it comes because Jesus, wisdom incarnate again, came and lived a life for us, completely fulfilling all of the law's requirements on our behalf. And he died for us, completely taking all the punishment that my sin and your sin deserved. He took that and opened up eternity. Not for everyone, not for those who will just work hard to get there, but to those who by faith embrace what Christ has done for them. It, It would be remiss of us to end a series on wisdom Without asking you to without asking you to contemplate eternity, living your life for this life it's not wise because this too will pass. Lift your eyes beyond this life to eternity and ask, "Am I living for eternity?" If you want to discuss more how to embrace the eternity that Christ has won for you, I would love to talk to you more about that today, tomorrow. But that's what wisdom, that's what real wisdom looks like. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word again. A word that I guess it shakes us free from being trapped, only seeing what's right in front of us, and lifts us, lifts our vision and our affections to eternal realities. Father, we pray that your spirit would be working in us now to embrace those realities and live by them. In Jesus' precious name, amen.